Some call this a creative minority. Others say it is a redemptive subversion. We say we are church in the wild. We're continuing our series through 1 Peter. Today we're in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and while I pray, Runette, if you can come forward and read Scripture for us. Oh God, we pray that you would send your Spirit to shape us by your Word, that we might believe you as we read it, as we study it, as we uh, apply it to our lives, that we might understand more of your character and more of who you say we are and more of our purpose in this world. And all God's people said, Amen. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as, as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves. Submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a, conscien conscien because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Amen. 
We've been going through First Peter, and today is a little bit of a switch because you see Peter has been telling the people that are suffering unjustly, they're suffering persecution, he's been focusing on who they are in Christ, their identity as God's people. They have been sinners separated from God, deserving God's justice and judgment, deserving eternity in hell and God's wrath. But yet because of God's great love for them, he sent his son. He sent his son as a substitute for their sins, that he was put on the cross instead of them. He took God's wrath instead of them. He suffered so that they might be restored to God. He was punished in their place, and on the third day he rose again. And when he rose from the dead and they put their faith in him, they became part of the people of God. They became a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's special possession. They are living stones built on top of the living stone, Jesus Christ. They are royalty. And Peter has been spending the first couple chapters focusing on and on who they are and who you are in Christ Jesus. But now he shifts a little bit. And he says, you know who you are in Christ. Let it sink in. But now let's turn out and talk about strategy for engaging a world that is opposed to Christ. Let's talk about the strategy for you to go out there and reach people who are against you. It's almost as if Peter has been a little bit of a coach in a huddle, and he's been giving them you know, the, the, the plays. Here's who you are in Jesus. And now he's saying, go out on the field. But get ready, because your status in society is complicated. Your identity in Christ is certain, but your status in society, it, it, it's complicated. It's complicated. You are part of a movement of people that is a resistance, that is a resistance in the world. That's what we're going to talk about today, the resistance or the strategy or what it looks like. Now that we know who we are in Christ, what does it look like to be out in the world engaging people with Christ who are opposed to Christ and therefore might be opposed to us? And we're going to talk about the position of resistance, the strategy of resistance, and the leader of the resistance. First of all, the position of resistance. Whenever you're in a resistance, the position is always tension. It's tension. And Peter starts off by saying, you are strangers and exiles. You're refugees. This is not your home. And that's going to cause tension. Get used to that place of tension while you're part of the resistance because you are different than the world. You have some th values that you share with the world, but many values you do not because you are a stranger in exile. This is not your home. You share space with people, but you don't think, act, feel the same way that they do. You're headed in a different direction because you are refugees. This is not your home turf. It's a reminder to us that we should be different than the world. We're not called to fit in. We're called to be different and have different values, and we're called to stand out. And quite frankly, we never were supposed to be at home. I know many of you feel as the, the culture becomes more and more post-Christian, as it, as it moves further and further away from Christian values, it feels as if now we're not home. But let me tell you, we never were home. We never were home. We were always strangers and exiles. We were always in someone else's space. You can imagine if you were to go to someone's apartment and, and kind of get comfortable, and you're like, oh, this is my spot. But then they come home, 
and you become aware that it's not your spot, it's their spot. But here's the thing, it was always their spot. It was always their apartment. We've always been on away turf. We've never had home field advantage. We are strangers and exiles, and that brings tension. But what also brings tension is that people, as they relate to us, they have this weird relationship with Christians, and it's that they're drawn to Christians, and they're also repulsed by Christians. People are drawn to us and the good that we do, but they're also repulsed by some of the things and some of the values that we hold as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter says. He says, though they slander you as evildoers, they will see your good works. <laughs> do you hear the contradiction? Evil and good. They're drawn to us, and yet they're repulsed by us. They're, they're repulsed because we have a vision from morality, for morality that doesn't come from our hearts, it comes from God. And that's considered evil in our culture. We, we say that there is a truth. There is not my truth, but there is the truth. And that's considered evil in our culture. We say life isn't ultimately about my self-fulfillment, but about following Christ. And when self-fulfillment is the goal of our culture, that's considered evil. And so the world looks at us and they say, you're the problem. If we could just get rid of you, society would be okay. Yet at the same time, they see the good works that we do, and it doesn't quite compute. They're repulsed by us, and yet strangely drawn to us. It's a tension. It's a tension that we are in as part of the resistance. But then there's also tension, because quite simply, oppressors will oppress, and persecutors will persecute. Verse 12 says, when they slander you as evildoers. Notice it doesn't say if, but it says when. We need to expect that we will be opposed. We need to expect that there will be opposition and oppression and persecution for faith in Christ. Peter goes on to say other places, ignorant people will say things about you. People will use their power against you. And so as Christians, we need to be ready for the tension that comes from oppressors oppressing and persecutors persecuting. That is our spot. But that always leads to us having a tension with how do we respond? How do we respond to this tension that we're living in? And, and one response is chameleon Christianity. Chameleon Christianity, which says, I'm going to kind of blend in as much as I can. And I'm going to lose the teachings of Jesus and, and the authority of the scripture that, that opposes our culture. So I'm going to blend in, and, and they like that I do good, but I'm going to stop saying that stuff about truth. I'm going to stop saying stuff about morality because they don't like that. That's chameleon Christianity. It's not what Peter's calling us to here. Another, another option that people look at is what I would say is a violent resistance. Let's rise up. Let's push back. Let's take this thing back over by whatever means necessary. But that's not the kind of resistance Peter is talking about. He's talking about a resistance that creeps into the underside of society, that lives under the underbelly, in the places that people normally won't go, and occupies spaces with a vision for the kingdom of God. The position of resistance is one of tension for you and I as followers of Christ. And the strategy... The strategy of the resistance is this. Endure suffering and do good. Endure suffering and do good. That is the strategy of resistance. 
First of all, Peter tells us to endure suffering that's internal. There's a battle going on inside of you as you feel the pressure of the culture around you. And the culture will say, do what you want. If you feel something, do it. And yet what Peter says is now, abstain. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And what Peter's telling you is you have a new identity in Christ, that you are part of the people of God. You are a royal priesthood that's been sent by God into this very city, into this very world to represent him. And when you continually say yes to sinful desires, it is waging war against your new identity. So you can't serve the city if you're serving yourself. Peter's not talking about self-care. We're all called to self-care. He's talking about self-indulgence. He's talking about following the passions of our flesh. He's talking about being more alive to what we want than what God wants. More alive to our purposes rather than God's purposes. He's talking about living for self versus living for God. And that's a battle. That's a suffering. Someone once said, life is a battle. That's not all it is, but the battle is always there. And part of that battle, if you're a follower of Jesus, is internal. It's saying no to self so you can say yes to God. But then also doing good. In verse 12, Peter says, conduct yourselves honorably. As you're controlling yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you have self-control, do good in our city. Do good out there in the world. And Peter's talking about something we call lifestyle evangelism. He's saying, don't just speak the words of the gospel, although you should. Show the gospel by the good that you do. Talk about Jesus, but also do the deeds of Christ in our city. And the result is actually quite amazing. What he says in verse 12 is that, though they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. I mean, I mean think about that for a minute. Christ will return and there will be people brought into his kingdom through faith and repentance because they saw the good deeds that you did. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be with Christ around his throne, and, they say, and they'll say something like, listen, I used to make fun of Christians because they wouldn't participate in the things that I did. But when I saw how kind they were, it won me over, and I repented and believed the gospel. And that's why I'm here in the new city. I, I used to not like how exclusive Christians were. They said Jesus was the only way, but, but when I saw how inclusive they were with homeless friends in our park, it changed my mind. I saw the truth of Jesus Christ, and I repented and believed the gospel. You know, I used to think that they were closed-minded about sexuality, but when I saw how open-handed they were with money, it gave me new perspective. I saw their generosity, and I knew that generosity must come from somewhere. It comes from Jesus and I repented and believed the gospel. I used to think that their beliefs were oppressive, but then I saw how they stood with the oppressed, and it changed my mind, and I repented and believed the gospel. See, though they slander us as evildoers, our good works will win them over, as we do them in the name of Jesus Christ. And they will repent and believe the gospel. And so Peter's telling us part of the strategy of resistance is enduring, enduring, an, inter, enduring an internal suffering. Saying no to yourself so that you can say yes to God's purposes in the world. You can do good in our city. You can be an agent of his redemption for people in need. But then he also says 
to go under and go above. Go under and go above. The strategy of enduring suffering and doing good is by going under and going above. In verse 13, he says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him. Peter is giving the small group of scattered Christians a strategy for the resistance in the midst of an oppressive government, in the midst of a government that does not follow Christ. Uh, this was not a democracy that they're living in. It was an empire. So, so the Roman emperor had power. And I don't believe it was at this time, but eventually it came to a place where they believed that the Roman emperor was divine. He was God. And so we're dealing with a much more oppressive society. So what is Peter saying? He's saying submit. Submit to the human authority. Submit to the government, even when it's oppressive. What is he saying? Is he saying that God approves of all government? No. He's not saying that. He's not saying that. If you look throughout the Psalms, God will talk about judging the king based on how just he is. And we sang earlier about God's concern for justice to be known throughout the world. So Peter's not saying that God approves of all government, but what Peter is saying is that man-made government is God's idea. And so to overthrow a government and replace it with another oppressive government or with anarchy isn't quite part of God's plan because human government is God's idea. But is Peter then saying we should just overlook unjust treatment? I mean, if governments are oppressive and they push people down, is Peter saying we should just overlook that? I don't think so either. Because Paul, Paul was treated unjustly and he protested. He protested for his rights. And so Peter's not saying we just overlook unjust treatment from the government. And he's also not saying that we should collude with the government when they do evil. Throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of the church, the people of God have always stood up when the government did evil. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in captivity in Babylon, and they submitted to the government until they said, you must worship our gods. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. But you also think about Christians in Nazi Germany who hid Jews. They lied. They stood up to the government in order to save people's lives. You think about the civil rights movement and the, and the Christians that were involved in that and, and the way that Christians stand up and adopt those who are at risk in the womb. Christians are not called to collude with government evil. So then what is Peter saying? We know what he's not saying, but what is he saying? Peter's saying this, go under and go above. Do your best to go under the law of the land as best you can, unless it violates a command of God. Do your best to be the best law-abiding citizen possible, even if the regime, even if the powers, even if the government is oppressive. But not only that, go above what the law requires. Go above what the law requires. In verse 14, he says, do what is good, even in the midst of an oppressive government. Do your best to be the best citizen under that government and go above what the law requires. That really is our position as church in the wild. The people of God have always been in this weird position of being in exile, of being refugees 
And God gives them this mission when they're in exile in Babylon and tells them, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Uh, The people of God were captured by an oppressive government and they were brought from their homeland. And God says, do good. While you're there, put down roots, settle in, seek the welfare of the city. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, I know some of you say, look, we obey the law, and the law still arrests us. We do good for the city, and the city calls us bad. What Peter is saying is keep doing good, even though that happens. Keep doing good, even though they try and stop you, even though your reputation is tarnished, even though they oppress you. Because, verse 15, It is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. In other words, Peter's saying, this is not my idea. This is what God wants. In the midst of unjust government, in the midst of oppression, you are to silence those who say ignorant things about you by outdoing them in good, by going above the law, by doing more good than anyone else in your city. The answer is, is not revolt and overthrow, but resist. Resist by enduring, suffering, and doing good. Doing good. There was a letter that was written a long time ago, and I'm not going to be able to say the guy's name right, but it was called the Epistle to Diognatus. See? And it was written sometime after the letter to 1 Peter was written, um, but... It was written about Christians, and the author said this, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or custom. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. In other words, Christians are just like everybody else. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. They're self-controlled. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in heavens. In the heavens. And read this. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend them. They go under and above. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. Resist by enduring suffering and doing good. Go under and go above. And that's actually the very place that God uses us. That's actually the very place that God uses us is in those moments of enduring suffering and doing good. Look at this quote. N.T. Wright says, be subject to ruling authorities, but make sure at the same time by your good behavior, you shame those who out of folly and ignorance want to criticize you. 
That is how God is establishing his presence and his rule on earth as it is in heaven. Doing good in the midst of oppression breaks the cycle of oppression. Because when you do good to someone who's doing bad to you, when you place yourself under, even when your reputation is tarnished, it exposes the lies and the abuses of power. And when someone's forced to deal with your humanity, when they see that you're doing good, even though they're oppressing you and doing bad, they have a decision to make. They can either react in more opposition to you, or it's the opportunity for God to use it to soften their hearts that they might actually come to a place of repenting and believing the gospel. As they see that you are willing to endure unjust treatment and yet still do good. As they see that there are laws that are against you, yet you place yourself under the laws and do more good than they do in their city. As they look at you and say, those Christians, they are the best citizens in Hallidale. They are the best citizens of Hollywood. They run towards the problems of the city. Even though we make it hard for them to be Christians, even though we make it hard for them to gather on Sundays by rules and whatever, they still take on the problems of the city and do good. They are the best citizens that we have, and yet we do not like them. Doing good is how God defeats evil. Doing good is how God exposes opposition and oppression. And we find the power to do that in realizing that the government isn't really our master. God is. And in God's eyes, we are his treasured possession. We are his people. We are the ones who have been shown mercy and been included in his family. The strategy is to endure suffering and do good. Peter goes on to say something even more pointedly about the strategy. And I know you were waiting for me to get to this. He says in verse 18, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. A couple things. Slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire was very different than chattel slavery, than the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, it wasn't for life. Oftentimes it was voluntary to pay off a debt. Uh, it wasn't based on race. And many times people who were slaves were not distinguishable from those who were not. So you couldn't tell the difference. Slaves at times were more educated even than their masters and they were allowed to make money. So I say all that to say it's different than slavery that happened in the United States. But it's still not good. It's still not good. At times, slaves were very vulnerable. They had, a, they had a low status in society, and they could be abused. They could be abused. So is Peter approving? Is Peter approving of this? Is he, is he approving of slavery? Well, the Bible's very clear. The Bible is very clear that slavery is opposed to God, it's opposed to his character, and it's opposed to the gospel. And if you want to write some of these down and look, and look later, I love Revelation 18. It talks about the, the renewal of all things. And one of the judgments that comes on the earth is that there are no more ships carrying slaves. Slavery is banished when God comes back to set things right. So the gospel is opposed to slavery. And if you're willing to put on first century lenses, you'll see that Peter actually isn't permitting slavery. 
Rather, he's dignifying those who are slaves. What do you mean? He's dignifying those who are slaves. Well, the common idea of the day was that slaves could be done no injustice. In other words, you can do to slaves whatever you want. Aristotle wrote that, the great philosopher. Yet, Peter is saying, you are having injustice done to you. In other words, he's naming it. He's not saying that slaves can have anything done to him. He's saying, you are being treated unjustly. He's dignifying their predicament. He's saying, I see it. I understand. This isn't right. But then he's also bypassing a patriarchal system. If you can hang with me for a minute. In this day, there was something called household codes. And whereas in our day, I run my house the way I want, and you run your house the way you want, there was much more of an expectation in that day that there were general rules for how the household would run for everybody. And who dictated that was the patriarch of the house. And oftentimes these patriarchs, the, the leader, the male leader of the house could be oppressive, he could be mean, but you always had to go through him. And so whenever these rules about how households were run would go to different houses, they would go through the patriarch because he's in charge. But what's Peter doing? He doesn't say patriarchs, tell your slaves. No, he addresses those who are enslaved directly. Why? Dignity. He wants to speak directly to them. He wants them to understand that they are part of this and they are an agent, they are part of the resistance. Peter goes outside the norms of his day to address them directly rather than giving power to the oppressive patriarch in order to show household slaves dignity. He's telling them, look, you are owned, but you're not property in God's eyes. He's empowering them to be part of the resistance. He's saying that you are an agent, you are an actor, you're not subhuman. You are part of this. You are part of the royal priesthood. You've been shown mercy. And so we have to understand that Peter is not belittling slaves. Rather, in that cultural moment, he's dignifying them from the norms. See, a lot of times people will read the Bible and they'll read stuff like this and they'll go, I knew it, I knew it, slaves, I knew it. But once we begin to understand the scripture's context, we actually see that it's quite redemptive. It's quite risky. He's moving towards liberation and freedom. And as we understand that Peter is doing this in the context of the whole book, it makes a lot more sense. Let me show you a little bit of how this works within the context of what we've already learned. Here's a short video that I want to play for you. In the context of what Peter is trying to communicate, it's all a package. He's trying to say you are part of something here. And though you are in a situation that I cannot get you, get you out of and you cannot get out of, I want to show you how to endure suffering and do good. Endure suffering, resist evil, and do good. Because that breaks the cycle of oppression and retaliation. When patriarchs say, we show them no mercy, and yet they're kind to us. We dishonor them, and yet they continue to show us respect. We're abusive, and yet they remain concerned about my well-being. It breaks the cycle of oppression and retaliation. Not only that, God sees it. God sees it. Verse 19 says, it brings favor if because of a conscience of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. When you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings 
favor with God. Why? The love of Christ shines most brightly when there is no love. The mercy of Jesus resounds when there is no mercy. The grace of our Savior radiates against the backdrop of injustice. Peter's not giving just good advice here on how to survive as a Christian. Peter has actually seen something himself. Peter, who drew his sword to fight the injustice when Jesus was arrested, has seen something and has now changed his mind in talking about the beauty of enduring injustice. What did he see? Well, he saw the leader of the resistance. He saw Christ enduring suffering and doing good. Peter writes, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ was abused, and yet he trusted God. Christ was sinned against, and yet he did not sin in retaliation. We worship Jesus Christ, the God-man who underwent the greatest act of injustice in the history of the world. And he did it for us that you and I might be restored to God. And that we might know that when we suffer injustice on the name, for the name of Christ, we're actually following Christ. Unjust suffering is not abandonment from God. It's an opportunity to follow Jesus. It's an opportunity to follow Jesus Christ and a place for God to show his love. The love of Christ shines most brightly when love is not shown to you. The mercy of Jesus resounds when mercy is given to those who show you no mercy. And the grace of our Savior radiates against the backdrop of injustice. See, resistance is really the advancement of God and his purposes. In the situations where love, mercy, and grace do not exist. In a few weeks, I go to Togo, West Africa, to be part of the Amana Missions Conference. You remember Pastor Macklin? who came uh, in January to speak to us. And I, I love Macklin. He's such a great example of, of this concept. When he moved back to West Africa, when he moved back to Togo, people, first of all, were wondering, why did you move back, man? You made it. You made it to the United States. Why would you go back? And he, he went back to preach the gospel. But when he went back, he had a particular neighbor who <laughs> greeted them, came around their house, and began cooking them food, expensive food, and would bring it over. And what they realized was every time that she would bring food over, they would get sick, really sick. Like, shut yourself off from your kids sick and wondering if you need to go to the hospital sick. And after this happened the second time, they made the connection of what was happening, that this woman was actually poisoning their food, was putting something in it. They later found out that this woman who lived down the street was actually practicing witchcraft in her home and was doing, trying to do great evil against Macklin and his family. After Macklin recovered and realized what was going on, he said, we're not going to retaliate. 
we're going to go to her. And we're just going to let her know that we're okay. We're not going to unpack the whole situation. We know what she did. And we're certainly not going to eat any more food that she cooks us. But Macklin would go and just greet her. Hi, how are you? It's good to see you. Now, they wouldn't allow her to come in the home anymore because they knew they couldn't trust her. And yet Rose, his wife, continually reminds Macklin, we must love her. We must resist the evil that she's doing to us. We must endure the suffering and do good to her. And Macklin sent me an email this morning talking a little bit about the story, and he said, praise God, we did not develop an attitude against her. We believe God is going to use that to save her. Endure suffering and do good because that is what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on the cross for us. And we ask that you would uh, change our posture, Lord, that we might, as even as we look at what you've done and the willingness to suffer, uh, that we might follow you in that, Lord. I pray for those who are under someone's thumb right now. Lord, would you give them courage? If it be your will, would you, would you free them from that situation? Would you free from oppression? But if the oppressor comes back, give them courage that you are not absent. You are in it. Give them the courage to love boldly even when they are oppressed. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.